0: Hey everyone, and welcome to Brunch and Learn. I'm your host, Nicole Dillon, and this is a podcast for women who love to brunch, like myself. Here, we talk about two of my favorite topics, brunch, obviously, and the idea that we can learn something new every day. Each episode, we'll interview a new female powerhouse, gab as though we're girlfriends at brunch, and learn something for our brains. So let's get started. Hello everyone, and welcome to another edition of the Brunch and Learn podcast, the podcast where we talk to women entrepreneurs on their subject matter expertise and we will get to talking about food a little bit later in the episode. But today's guest I want to introduce is Chelsea Ford. She is the founder of a network called Females in Food and creator of the Foodpreneur Formula, a group coaching program for women building food and drink products or services, catering businesses, culinary education services, or packaged meal businesses.
1: So I first want to welcome you, Chelsea, to the podcast. Hi Nicole, hi everybody. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be with you. I am excited that you are our first Aussie (laughs) and you're in Sydney, right? That's right. (laughs) What time is it there? You're in the future, I believe. I'm a Thursday morning and I think it's Wednesday afternoon for you right now. That's crazy. (laughs) what's it like (laughs) or or as you say fall you know we're moving out of summer into fall right now oh yes I totally forgot about that (laughs) so it's a little chilly actually no and right not that I'm a weather expert but we've been experiencing a La Nina so heaps and heaps of rain but Sydney's tropical or subtropical so we've had huge amounts of big drops of rain and still really warm, as if not quite like you're on the equator, but it has felt yeah a little like that of late. So no, I'm I'm just in a in a short sleeve top, nothing too, nothing too wintry yet. I guess
0: I wanted to just kick things off and let's let's talk to the listeners and tell them a little bit more about you, how you got started in your career and working in food and beverage and the consumer goods world.
1: Yeah. Look, food has always been my thing. My nan helped me decorate an artist palette cake for a cake competition in the third grade. I don't think i won that comp, but for me, it was never about winning. (laughs) I just loved the whole creativity of food and drink. And uh, we had to do, then when I was in high school, I did work experience at a few locations, but one was the Hyatt Hotel, International Hotel Group, and then I went back into hotels and initially wanting to be a chef. Uh, and I did 13 or so weeks in the kitchen as part of a hotel management traineeship with Hyatt. But it um, it really wasn't for me. I wanted to be in food, but not necessarily hospitality, ultimately. So I, I really wanted to be the general manager and always have. I was very ambitious and driven and excited. And I love that. Combination of the business of food, effectively. So um, I worked my way up the ranks uh, in catering companies. I was I worked for Sydney's leading corporate catering company, the Mode Group, and then went worked for a number of American uh, enterprises. So I cut my teeth really with Sara Lee, coffee and tea, and Kellogg. So I was head of export and route, which is convenience and food service, and managed national accounts so I have in fact lived in the US for a while and have worked all around the world so I've been with big manufacturers and loved it so whether or not you know it's my third grade cake or puffing rice on the big conveyor belt at Kellogg or green beans coming in in hessian sacks for the coffee and tea and everything in between I love that I find that so exciting and equally if I can help other people with their dream in food because of my knowledge in food and drink and the commercial aspect I'm happy and that's pretty much what I've been doing all my career until of course I started working with the smaller end of town yeah which I can tell you about too now if you'd like
0: yeah I'd love to know just like how you started working with
1: foodpreneurs
0: but yeah like how did you even I guess yeah tell us a little bit more about females and food and working with these
1: foodpreneurs yeah. Look, I, um, I was living, this is so random, Nicole, I was living in the Andes and um, I just left Kellogg. I wanted to find myself and so living with a shaman and I came back ultimately to Sydney via California, Ontario and an ashram in India. So that's like a, like a 10-second snapshot of <laughs> finding myself. Well before Eat, Pray, Love, I might add, <laughs> I might add. <laughs> Way ahead of its time. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I really didn't, after experiencing so much heart in my life, and I guess we'd call it finding myself, it seems like an old story now, but just recounting it now in my mind's eyes, I tell you, I didn't want to go back to the big manufacturers, just really wasn't where my heart was or where my values were aligned anymore. And i had always consulted on the side anyway to small producers on how they could grow and scale up their business i'd moonlighted with at, with those sort of um, consultancy gigs whilst having a full-time job b- before i went to that to the shopman and when i came back i i found myself doing a master's degree and writing my thesis <clears throat> part of me on women mentors empowering women mentees and at the time it seemed like a whole lot of disparate skills and education and life experience but then one day um, actually five years ago around this time actually possibly today ironically I felt like it was mana from heaven I just got this idea of going all in with what is now called females in food and is a business to help women in the food and drink industry who perhaps feel really confident creatively but not so confident or clear commercially and that's where my strength is. So that's how it started you know I took this experience commercially and and my um, exposure to lots of different global markets and this education and began i guess more officially working to help women experience exceptional business and financial growth who who were specifically in food and drink so i i felt like i was really aligned because my head and my heart were doing were in alignment finally you know prior to that my, my head might have been satisfied but my heart wasn't and vice versa but now and and for the last 5 years on some levels and it sounds such cliche but it's like I'm living the dream because I just do what I love every day and see people's lives improve you know because for me I want women in food and drink to follow their passion and prosper I don't think they should be mutually exclusive and I think on some levels you teach what you've got to learn and there's probably some of that in my history and why I eventually felt feel like I am in alignment with females in food because you know I don't think you should just have to do a job for the sake of it. Um, so if you can follow your heart, but then get paid and pay yourself a great wage, then that's what that's what I enable um, because women. I did a lot of research prior to launching Females in Food. I'm passionate about getting very clear. This is my advice to women foodpreneurs to do their market research, that they must find a market greater than, say, their friends and family, despite how good their product might taste or their service delivery might be. So I discovered that of the women-led and founded businesses, 41% of them are started to solve a problem that's quite personal to them, whether it be their own gluten intolerance or their child's nut allergy, for instance. So how can that be the purpose that drives you, which is fantastic to be a purpose-led business, Um, and most of the women I work with are, in fact, probably all of them are, but to go beyond just solving a problem. For themselves so that's really how I started females in food and why I do what I do
0: That just made me think of even you know you see it so often now of these niche businesses and like you kind of mentioned beyond your friends and family enjoying it but these niche industries and things of gluten and do you have any thoughts on on that and like niche industries versus going having the big idea? does
1: niche win? I think there's a big idea in a niche. I think that's a <laughs> hybrid, actually. Yeah, that really works. <laughs> <That's it. laughs> yeah. You know, and you're seeing it in the CBD world. I mean, I'm not an expert on CBD, um, albeit I did speak on a panel out of New York, actually, about, you know, cannabis oil products. Um, and you see that that's a niche with a big idea, the gummies. Equally, um, oh, there's this awesome. Actually, she's an Aussie living in New York as well. Um, Cara Landau. you know, she has probiotic cookies. So, you know, that's an cookies have been around forever, but she's, for, she's a dietitian by profession and she's narrowing down into probiotics and gut health and has been invested in by Mondelez. Like, you know, so I do think there's a hybrid of what you're saying, which is so exciting. Yeah. to me that just I mean, that just floats my boat because that's interesting. You know, it's not just another, excuse my expression, me too. That's how you can find your target market. Because there's going to be people who identify, you know, they're going to be early adopters and really identify, say, with Cara's example, the probiotic, and others who might just be general generally interested in gut health or health in general, or those who just want to snack on a cookie. But she's going to stand out from the crowd and she does, because of the niche marketing message that she has. And of course, the health attributes and the fun- it's a functional food. And you know that, of course, is also part of what's been trending the last few years, functional food. And I was also
0: um, curious of when you do work with foodpreneurs, what is some of the things that you see that they struggle with the most?
1: Mm-hmm. I love that question because... I really hope this is helpful for your listeners. And I think it will be because I get to see behind the scenes of so many food and drink businesses and startups and those in the growth phase. And there are definite patterns that I hope I'd really love to shed a light on a few things. One is trying to do everything yourself. I understand that resources, particularly at the beginning, may be limited. And two major resources are time and money the most important resources for any small business. But as soon as you can move beyond doing absolutely everything yourself and certainly outsourcing those things that are not your zone of genius, the faster you'll grow. And I understand that some people will not outsource anything or get help because they won't spend the money. But the level of fatigue that I see in those people, I have a curry paste Manufacturer who's a member of Foodpreneur's Formula. And she's finally agreed to outsource the cleaning of her jars because she's a mum of three. When I see her on Zoom, she tells me and she looks, I can see it, really fatigued. And part of her reticence, actually in her case, is possibly not so much the reticence to spend the money, was also to share the intellectual property of her grand- grandmother's recipe of the curry paste. So that's why I said to her, we'll just outsource the, the cleaning of the jars and the cleaning up of the kitchen and also the chopping of the ingredients. Because there's a demarcation there of duties. If they just do one component of that, they'll never get to know the grandma's recipe. So, you know, what, so one of the struggles is doing everything yourself. And I guess part of that was also the other struggle, which is not spending money to make money. As humans, we generally gravitate to something that we love. You know, um, me, food business. Um, I've been fairly clear about that already. And I'm a business person, but I'm, you know, there's obviously parts of me that, you know, things that I I can't do. And that's where what I outsource or outsource to a developer, the technical stuff, for instance. So that's the same with the women I work with, if you can outsource things that you're not great at. So I have another foodpreneur who is a food scientist by profession, and she gravitates to research and development and product development. And she can lose herself in that. It's her absolute zone of genius. And I think the zone of genius is easy to pick. It's when, you, when time just goes past and you don't even realize it's gone past. But sales and, and marketing, she really struggles with. So getting traction in with stockists has been really difficult for her because she's not a confident negotiator um, and and tends to just continue to keep going back to the to the kitchen. Obviously, that they're both important aspects of building a business, but I guess that leads me to selling. Most foodpreneurs don't think about before going into building their business the sales part. You know that's a mistake that catches up with you really quickly. And even if you have thought a little bit about it or you've had some success by getting a distributor, if you're in the um, food service or grocery channel, because I'm reminded of an olive manufacturer that I work with. And one time she was on the phone to me crying because she had landed a really big stockist and she was in the deli section of a significant grocer. They she won that account. But then they said, you have to deal with a distributor. Um, because they wanted to consolidate their invoices, so they just deal with less people rather than individual small producers. So that's fine. But then she abdicated the responsibility of the selling to that distributor under the under the misguidance that that distributor would continue to sell her in to that grocer. But they didn't. Mm-hmm. you know, they would substitute her for some some other olive manufacturer or they don't present promotions. I mean they can but you really have to be on top of distributors all the time. They don't necessarily think and they're not, they don't manage their profit and loss statement like a leading with selling small producers products, generally speaking. So I think that's another mistake that producers, small producers often don't know about. And I guess that also leads me to something I've been talking about a lot, particularly the last couple of days, is you've got a price right from the beginning and that means including all the costs of using an intermediary like a distributor, like a wholesaler or brokerage fees, even if you don't use them now. Because what I see time and time again is uh, foodpreneurs getting caught out that when they're ready to grow and use somebody maybe to distribute their product, then they don't have enough margin, profit margin, to pay them because they haven't priced their product from the start with the future in mind that they will have to divvy up their pricing to a number of intermediaries. So, you know, an intermediary could be a wholesaler, could use a sales agent, you know, a distributor, a broker, etc. cetera. So, um, and then, you know, and one, one yesterday who makes... Um, I was talking to Beetroot Cavass, a fermented product, and she says, I want to deal direct with the store. Well, for this exact reason. Now that's fine. But also then there's the hidden costs of your dealing with the customer service element, which a distributor generally would do for you. So there's pros and cons of going direct. And also it limits you generally geographically if you're if you're delivering. Direct yourself. So, yeah, hopefully, I hope that was clear, Nicole, because I, I know that I get so passionate about that because there's so many things I could share. No, I loved all of those examples and I have already learned so much.
0: I don't particularly have a food product and I don't know anything that goes into it. So, that is extremely, I was like taking so many notes uh, in case I want to start one. I had no idea about any of this stuff. <laughs> Uh, um, wow. Um, not my zone of genius, but I do have a couple questions. Do you work with your clients on pricing strategies? Yes. And also, I, I guess I was curious of, again, since I'm totally don't know the industry, is it different with manufacturers, distributors, because you're in Australia, is that any different from America or any other clients that you might have in other parts of the country, or is it kind of a universal language?
1: So yeah, no, fair enough question. You're talking about pricing. Is, is it is it uh, sort of uh, domestic versus universal, like it, um, the way the structure of the pricing?
0: Um, more so like distributors and manufacturers and
1: getting all into those logistics. Oh, I beg your pardon. Yes, I understand. It's universal, really. And I have clients all over the U.S., Um, UK, Mozambique, even Hong Kong, uh, Canada, Central America, obviously Australia and New Zealand. And it's very similar, particularly US, UK, Canada, Australia, New Zealand.
0: Yeah, the very limited knowledge I have is I sometimes hear that American products, you know, when they have to be produced um, in Canada or done internationally they have to do
1: different labels and things like that so oh the nutritional information panel that kind of labeling expertise is not mine and there are differences and of course you guys you're on imperial and we're on metric so Mm -hmm. those things are different but in terms of the Intermediary network of manufacturing, and you generally in the US call it co-packing. We call it co-manufacturing. The process and the, what I would call the value chain. And let me just kind of, without using jargon, you know, the idea of outsourcing your product creation to someone and then getting it delivered into a wholesaler or into store, and then having it priced for retail or having a wholesale price and then a retail price. That the system. Is or the chain is relatively similar. I'm learning so much already.
0: <laughs> Again, don't have a product for this. Um, you know your stuff. <laughs> so interesting to me. But I'd also like to chat a little bit more about so you have this foodpreneur journey framework with various growth stages. Can you dive into a couple of those stages?
1: Yes. So, I noticed after, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd work, what am I trying to say? With the struggles that small food and drink producers have, I noticed that they didn't have a roadmap of what to expect and mistakes to avoid along the way. No one had really pulled that together with any clarifying insight. Uh, so, I pulled and tallied the research that I had from years in the business, mostly at the big end of town. And then my own research at the smaller end of town prior to launching Females in Food. And I documented what I've now called the foodpreneur journey, which is effectively growth stages that I see small producers go on to build their business and ultimately prepare themselves for scale. And scale is a term I hear thrown around incorrectly a lot. And scale really is just adding revenue at a faster rate than taking on new costs. So it's generally doing more without necessarily spending more. That's a super simple (laughs) definition, but hopefully your listeners give me some leeway there. (laughs) Um, So the foodpreneur journey is six stages, albeit at the very beginning, there is a stage which i call create which is the ideation stage where you're just kicking around ideas and then i my with my journey and my roadmap it's so called officially starts with the assess stage which is about validating that there is real demand and we've touched on that already today with regards to it's got to be bigger than friends and family you need to quantify and qualify who you're the size of the market and the size of the opportunity and effectively just Predicting your success, basically, that's simply put. And then my my coaching program starts at stage two, which is commercialized. And that's when you're really putting down solid business foundations. And I help foodpreneurs there do two primary, very important things. And one is write an operations plan, because it, it also sort of blows my mind that we're in we're in food and drink, which is a, a production hands-on uh industry even if you're doing services you know like catering it's very very hands-on or packaged meals um yet often no operations plan which includes you know estimating any risks that may come your way and when i talk about risks i'm talking about say okay you're going to is your kitchen going to put your rent up and that's a risk to your profit um or has there been a drought where you buy almonds and, you know, almonds are so, use so much water, is that going to drive up the raw, the, the, um, the price of almonds? So the operation plan really simply but succinctly helps foodpreneurs write down what's, what their next 12 months will look like, including a high-level sketch out of their promotions so that they're continually talking to their target market and generating demand. And the other important piece of commercialise is making money. (laughs) So for me, that's about having your profit and loss statement done. And I I have a plug and play resource for that. You just plug your numbers in, you know, steal with pride really. Um, Once you're in my program, you just plug your numbers in, make it your own. Um, I've got all the calculations done for you. And also ensuring that you're making money. And look, I heard somebody say recently, you're doing it all wrong if you're not making money from the beginning. And I just found that so shaming because, of course, you want to make money. And my mission is to help women pay themselves a great wage. But you'd feel pretty crap about yourself, I think, if you weren't making money from the get go. Now, some people do. But most businesses have a pretty resource intensive at the beginning. So I just think if anybody is listening to this and they're not yet making money and they're in the early stages, like just be really nice to yourself. I just, I I can't stand that idea. Now that said, of course, I'm all about helping you make money to have bigger impact. You know, get your product, your service, your jam, your kombucha, your catering out to more people. And you don't want to be funding funding it on behalf of people you want to be making a profit um, so you can reinvest in your business Uh, but one day at a time that's all I'm trying to say (laughs) (laughs)
0: Um,
1: and then the the next stage I've called activate um, because this is a stage of increasing demand for your product or service and you don't necessarily graduate from a stage they can and do happen concurrently but the idea of uh, me calling out a specific um, stage that is Activate is to focus foodpreneurs' mind's eye on their marketing and their sales. So that's the stage where I want women in food and drink to really understand their customer avatar, you know, who their ideal target customer is, everything about them, the demographics and the psychographics. Um, and I have a lovely framework that helps them you know, understand the things that people don't necessarily talk about. But are their buy, buying motivators, such as their fears and frustrations, their wants and their aspirations? And then also in that stage is where I help women put that customer avatar in place in terms of their marketing funnel. So how are you creating a customer attraction model? So that, you know, hopefully you are making money whilst you sleep. So how are you driving awareness about your brand, interest, desire, and ultimately getting people to take action, buying your stuff. Yeah. And also in an Activate Stage, interestingly, I it's interesting because it's, again, something that's often overlooked. I also help women. Again, I have this whole module. I have plug and play resource on cash flow cash flow you can google cash flow and you can get a cash flow calculator i reckon from a search engine but it is simply money coming in money going out what's left over and and i guess this plays in nicely to to spending money one of the things that i see many foodpreneurs particularly at early stage don't do spending money to make money you know you can if you track the money coming in, money going out and what's left every month, you know how much you can afford to spend. So some people don't spend any at all and some might spend too much and there needs to be a, I think, a middle ground. And things to spend money on, you know could be could be branding, could be packaging, um, could be business advisory services could be on a bookkeeper, could be on a co-packer, could be on um, networking and education, whatever it is that you need. So that's the activate stage. And then the stage four, which is the final stage really in foodpreneurs formula, my coaching program before, I mean, I have an advanced program, but that's sort of out of scope for this conversation. But this breakthrough stage is activating systems and using data to accelerate momentum and free you up to scale. And so this is around systemizing. So earlier when I was telling you about my curry paste manufacturer, when she outsourced the cleaning of the jars and the chopping of the vegetables, as simple as that may sound to some people, she needed a system for that. Because then the person, or in some cases, you might engage a robot, believe it or not, um, to do a task, they need to know what to do. So, it needs to be either written down or on a video or on an audio recording. And so that's the beginning of a system and a process document. And anybody who's listening who wants to ultimately sell a business, a business, and I get this, I get asked this all the time, you know, what's, you know, what should I charge for my business? What's the value, et cetera? Well, part of the value is an operations book or document of the whole business. What happens when? How do you answer the phone? How do you write emails? How do you chop the vegetables? What's the ingredients? What's the recipe? Um, What's your brand voice? Everything. And so I actually have a business map of all the systems in a business to guide women in food to know what to do and when and how to start. So I always encourage people to start probably just, if you are making the food, to do it, to to outsource those hands-on tasks. Um, early and and the reason why I mention a robot is because I use Temi T-E-M-I and Temi is a robot to have you heard of Temi Nicole
0: no never.
1: I love Temi. she's he or she is I think 25 cents US a minute and she she's a transcription service So if you're too busy to write down the process of cleaning your jars or how you set your menu or what vegetables need to go in which masala, you could potentially talk it into your phone and that MP3 file, then you upload it to Temi and Temi transcribes it. Now, Temi has an older sister called Rev. It's a company I think that owns. Yeah, I haven't heard of that one. (laughs) Yeah, so Rev's more expensive, I think, a dollar a minute. And Rev is more accurate because it is a human. Like even my company name, Females in Food, sometimes she gets that wrong. So that's a little annoying when I have to edit her transcription. But what I'm saying is like if you're a foodpreneur and you need to transcribe, you know, you need process document to tell somebody how to do something, You could film yourself or audio record yourself and then upload that to Temi and then she transcribes it and then you've got a written document. And I love that because say you are in the kitchen and you could just have your phone, either audio or video recording you, and you just tell it what you're doing. You don't even need to pre-think it because all the wonderful people that are listening to us right now, they probably do so much of their work without thinking. You know, it's just their zone of genius. So they can just say, yeah, so um, I get the chef's knife. I get the carrots. I get the celery. I have the, you know, the, the, the leader or whatever that is in Imperial right now, the, you know, the, the pint, jar, you know, and start to just say these sorts of things into the phone and then give it to Temi. And there you have it. You have, a, you have the beginning of a system and you haven't had to type out anything. And I love that. So that's kind of part of what happens at the breakthrough stage where you are getting serious about systems and you're also starting to look at your data. And for some data might be as bore the pants off them, but for others, it's so exciting. Um, you know, I, I've just commissioned some work from someone to assess what which of my emails subjects are the most opened. And I learned the one email subject. I've just had a preliminary look yesterday because I'm having a females in food strategy meeting this weekend. So I'm pretty sure the one that's the most popular, the subject is something along the lines of foodpreneurs fail doing this, something along the lines of failure anyway. And then I give some information around some of the, the watchouts like I have with you today. And I reckon people love that because I know I love it that if I can get a heads up on what hasn't worked for other people then I can avoid that mistake myself and save myself time and money and so having being armed with that data yesterday morning I was actually doing a little jig because it was so good to see that you know and equally in um, you can see it in sales data as well which which catering package is the most popular or which, which size package is the most popular or does the pink one sell more than the green one and things like that. And then, of course, you can make decisions in your business based on the insights and the meaning-making that you get from all of that. So that's the breakthrough stage. Um, yeah, so it really is pretty solid um, and, in my opinion, exciting. <laughs> I do like the data and insights. Um, I'm with you there. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. I'm glad to hear I <laughs> I didn't lose you on that one. Yeah.
0: No, I love all of these. And I love how you give specific examples. I've been honestly writing down a lot of notes, even though I do not even have a food product. I think I'm, the thing that resonates with me the most is the spend money to make money. It's something I have to do. I have to take my own advice and your advice. <laughs> I think a lot of You know, my friends on the internet and audience and listeners here know, I've said it probably a million times, I'm a nine to fiver and do this community on the side. So time is of the very limited and, you know, a lot of our beginnings were in events, which has been paused with COVID and creeping into this food content creator, I even want to say quote unquote influencer of, you know, it's so unknown because I feel like everyone has now been at home wants to be this and don't know about anyone else, but growing up YouTube celebrity and in- influencer was not a, a job category. <laughs> so always figuring that out as I go. But I think, yeah, that's what really resonated with me spending money to make money in even ways of like more education and networking events. And I loved all those examples.
1: Mm, thank you yeah i think they spend money to make money is um it's sometimes hard to see the forest for the trees and it's interesting you talk about networking and of course and i, I feel i feel uh, it just brings some tears to my eyes just talking about the you know the inability really of the last uh, 12 months us to be able to get together in person and um and of course you know that's been that's a big component of your your business or women who brunch and um you know networking and being around people who understand you and are like-minded um so powerful, isn't it? Yeah, it's, um, it's reassuring. And I think that's why also too, I, I love the community aspect as well, just to know that you're not alone. You don't have to do it alone. And another reason why I'm very big on sharing the path ahead for people, but because I see a lot of particularly, well, you know, obviously I, I work with women and I see sometimes they're going crazy. You know, it's crazy making, reinventing the wheel and feeling like it's just happening to them. And so somehow find a way to get together. And that's, whilst online might not be absolutely perfect, it's been a good a good alternative to face-to-face.
0: I did want to ask, what are some other entrepreneurship tips or learnings or wisdoms that
1: you have or could share with us? Yeah, have a plan and then plan to fail. <laughs> <laughs> uh, look, entrepreneurs, and you hear it, you hear it often, you know, iterate again, for me, documenting things, which, which can bore the pants off people as well, particularly um, creatives, you know, women in food and drink. But if you could just put a little bit of information down, then there's a reason why that's good. It gets out of your head, you can review it, and then you can improve on it the next quarter or the next year, and you can share it. And, you know, I've already talked a lot about getting help in different aspects of your business. And that's the way you then can improve it as well. So that's the plan to fail piece. It's not obviously deliberately do stuff without any calculated risk or strategic thought behind it. But if you can begin to take a step in the right direction, like I can see so many people on the sidelines wanting to, live their best life, live from their heart, pay themselves a great wage, but not step into that. And at the risk of sounding, you know, spooky woo-woo, and I suppose I did start this conversation with you telling you I used to live with a shaman and then actually in an ashram. But, you know, that for me comes pretty easily. I I am a risk taker. That also has its own problems. But I see a lot of people watch um, you know, I made a decision a number of years ago to stop just consuming content and actually create content. You know you're creating right mm-hmm. now, nicole. and uh, and then and I think that can be applied in different different areas. Um, obviously, consumption is in that aspect, and learning and education is incredibly important in whatever area turns you on. But you know, also I think taking risks to put yourself out there. And again, that comes back to why a support network, whether it be online or offline, is really important. Because it's freaking scary putting yourself out there. You know, I mean, rejection. And the more, the more you put yourself out there, the more you're going to get rejected. Like it's a bit of a numbers game. So you need support and Friends and family are great. And I see a lot of people, women in food and drink, who don't have really a supportive friends or family because they think they're nuts. Like, what are you doing? Some don't. I know for me, I have a really supportive husband and family, but I also educated him at the very beginning. I mean, before (laughs) we got together, I was really strong with him and said, you know, my work is very important to me and my purpose, so never shame me for it. I will work a lot and I love it. And he never has and he supported me and he doesn't understand it. He's not in the industry and, um, in fact, he's not a business person. So, yeah. So get a supportive network, plan and plan to fail. And I want to mention this to you as well, to your listeners, and that is foodpreneurs overestimate what they can do in a day but Mm -hmm. vastly underestimate what's possible in one year. So I think the insight for that is focus, just make little micro commitments, meaning, uh, you know, because we have an accountability system in Females in Food in my membership program, and I ask people every month to fill in what I call the orange sheet, and I ask them for three micro commitments, and they're aligned with their full year goal. So the full year goal might be to double their revenue, Let's, let's say that. So when, so we're an Asian source um, company that's just joined me and they, they're awesome. And, but they've they've got about $10,000 revenue a month and the majority of that, maybe 60% of it is from farmer's markets. And you could appreciate in the last year that's been compromised and 40% from retail stockists. And they want to reverse that, which I think is a great goal. And so they completed their orange sheet for the first month in, gave it to me last week. You don't have, they don't have to send it in like a teacher or whatever, but (laughs) they did for me. They wanted me to see it. And so they're telling me, you know, what stockists they're going to visit because they're aligned, their micro commitments of, I'm going to visit such and such retailer. And it's aligned with my four-year goal of doubling my revenue and moving my revenue from farmers markets into grocery channel. But then on coaching yesterday, they tell me they're doing cooking classes. Now, I haven't caught up with them since yesterday's coaching, but I did say to them in the session, all right, okay, that's not really aligned with your 4 year goal. Now, we can all change direction at any time and that's fine. But this is what I see happens often is like your heart wants one thing but you do another like cooking classes is not what is not what's going to get them to double their revenue in the next year in the retail channel um and i see that happen all the time and i think people women in particular it's a bit of a badge of honor to be busy Mm
0: -hmm.
1: stop being busy just be effective and and focus am i sounding too bossy now
0: (laughs) No, it's, I agree. I have agreed with every, I, I am speechless. I've with like everything mentally that you've said it, on so many levels. I think it's a lot of, especially on the internet too, of comparing yourself of like, yeah, everyone should be doing charcuterie boxes now. Everyone should be doing cooking classes. Um, but that's such a great point. Does it really align with your, you know, next couple years goal, whatever that, you know, four or five year goal. I think that's so important. I love that. And too, like, yeah, with like COVID, especially, I mean, our whole thing was events-based, but I always wanted to launch a podcast and I didn't have the time. And then I had so much time and (laughs) I launched it and created, you know, going back to what you said before, created my own content. You know, I can get sucked into looking on the internet and still comparing myself to everyone else, but it wouldn't have allowed me to continue the conversation when we couldn't have events and even like meet so many cool women and especially talk to someone in Australia I mean mm. <laughs> you know it would have never happened <laughs> so it that that power of what you can even do and accomplish in a year I love that even I do that sometimes well all the time too I'm just like writing down each month like wins and just like reminding myself always doing the look back of course new years things like that but I love everything you're
1: saying basically. Thank you. And I love that you've said that you celebrate your wins. You know, that is so good because when we work in small business and solopreneur land, it's so easy. Oh, I know I suffer for want of a better word from, I just move on to the next thing too. And it's like, no, hold on a moment. Can we just take a moment, you know, maybe take myself out for a in my case, a hot chocolate or a cup of tea, and or a walk around the park. I live next to Sydney Harbour and um, a beautiful park. You know, can I can I just go out there and breathe in the wind, whatever that wind is? Because so often, I see it in others, and I know it for myself. Where I just go, okay, yep, next. Because there's always something to do. Yeah. <laughs> And I think on a somatic level, you know, on a body emotion level, a body memory level, and I'm again, you got to you, you teach what you got to learn, Nicole. Honestly, I'm talking to myself now. I think, <laughs> you know, just reset, reset, and appreciate what you've achieved. Um, and that's why I love, and in females and food, I absolutely love celebrating the wins of others because of this exact reason. We're just on to the next thing because we've got to we've got to make the rent or make the mortgage or buy the school, school shoes or pay the, you know, the water bill or whatever it is. It's like, bloody hell, you know, let's just take a moment of rejoicing.
0: I wanted to ask you two more questions before we go into wrap up questions. <laughs> but I was curious because I think you touched on it earlier in our conversation of um, geez. CBD and fermentation and just i'm just curious in general of like other trends or
1: things you see in the food space yeah the plant-based proteins is yeah. massive you know plant-based food whether that's um you know made in a lab or not 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 food sorry uh meat but equally the non-dairy you know the use of hemp cauliflower cashew's been done for a little while but in you know non-dairy ice cream or whatever they frozen dessert um, but also in in cheese functional foods so i talked earlier about kara landau from uh, she used to be called the traveling dietitian i just can't i'm not sure what her current business is but um she's she's the aussie in new york um and with the probiotic cookies and yeah you know, i think the alcohol industry is not my area of expertise but i'm seeing so much alternative oh to yeah alcohol and adult sodas as well really huge um you call them sodas we probably i don't know what we call them fizzy drinks you know um often made with native ingredients and another thing that's not food per se but related to food in in a marketing sense is selling the senses selling to the senses you know the crunch Mm -hmm. the fizz. The um, uh, and and also the, the the mood, I think the mood is a real trend. Um, mood food, um, you know, I see a real resurgence in the last few years on Tassans, you know, teas and Tassans. and so the beverage space in general, alcoholic or non-alcoholic, hot or cold, is I think is really fascinating. And then of course the food as a medicine with mm-hmm. CBD. Uh, CBD is not my area of expertise, but I, um, you know, obviously I obviously I spoke on that panel about business and um, got to know a lot of people that are producing producers and are following it a little bit. Not a little bit, I'm following it a lot, but, you know, I, I don't have a real depth of knowledge about that. Yeah, and then I think also the so-called diets. I think keto is probably one of the leaders. And I, I'm working with someone at the moment who's got a solution for FODMAP, you know, again, food is medicine. FODMAP diet with irritable bowel syndrome etc she actually has flavored salts and spice rubs yeah it's fascinating she's partnered with a university yeah it's very interesting and she's partnered with a university um very niche you know it goes back to that hybrid that I mentioned earlier that you were asking about around uh I suppose go big or, or niche yeah she's got flavored salts and by the way, this woman, I think, is over 65 and lives in remote Australia. And for anybody who is listening, who has a dream, and for some reason, because they they live remotely or, you know, they're over the age of 65 or they're in any way feeling isolated, you can do it. I see it with this woman and many others and just believe you can do it. Um, and surround yourself with other people that are doing it Um, this this woman blows my mind yeah and so it's that hybrid of and I talk to her a lot with regard to her marketing message you know people don't just eat salt straight up you've got to show it as an ingredient so collaborations are going to be really important for you because you know your ingredient is going to be in a recipe if she was standing for everything she would fall or standing for nothing she would fall for everything but she's got salt and so she's talking to the people who suffer from IBS or 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 relate to the FODMAP information and diet so that talk about niching in something that's ages old salt flavored salts yeah I love it she she's an inspiration to me that client I adore her as I do all of them you know because it's takes guts and um to build a business and it's not easy that's why you got to have your heart and your head and support for both
0: and i'd like to know if, what else is next for you anything coming up I want to share
1: yeah yeah i have um a webinar actually that you can find on my website three steps to double your revenue in the next 12 months and it's an hour so it's solid of growth tips uh, there's a downloadable workbook with lots of examples more of what we've started to talk about today and I thought that would be a really useful go-to for anybody who's listening who might want to find out the you know the pillars I talk about the three particular pillars in the commercialized activate and breakthrough stages and give them a you know one of the frameworks that, that I provide in that is a model called function eight which is the eight business building blocks and I explain what they all are and how and we talked today a little bit about tending towards your zone of genius and then that possibly overlaps one or two at most blocks of the of all the functions one of the functions of building a business so then how do you continue to spin the plates on the other six or seven and so yeah that's um that's a a webinar that the link is evergreen and um, available on the website i thought i'd mention to your listeners for them to get more information if they like it's called uh, free Masterclass, i think it's called on my website yeah and i can add it to the show notes
0: as well thank you awesome well i'd love to go into some fun wrap-up questions i'm dying to know about brunch and i hope you like brunch because everything i see on instagram makes it seem that australia is pretty pretty a big deal when it comes to brunch Yeah do
1: you enjoy it i love it i love it it. and you know it must be hereditary because my dad he says it's his favorite meal of the day um so i reckon my favorite and funnily enough nicole i just wanted to double check before i gave you this answer so i checked okay the answer is i absolutely love salmon eggs benedict and you know what? I just put it in Google before we got on the call today, and it said it was developed in NYC. And I thought, oh well, there you go. But no, we we um have eggs Benedict on many many menus, and I, my favorite is the salmon one. And I always feel like a real pig afterwards. Yeah, it's
0: very hard to tell because I, I see so much brunch content in Australia, and we have in New York City so many Australian based restaurants for brunch I
1: don't know yeah, we're big on avocado aren't we have you picked that up
0: yeah and I th- bowls too like acai bowls oh, oat yeah. bowls grain bowls look making things look just beautiful with the eyes and just bringing out colors yeah yeah
1: the purple huh from the acai and also the
0: um I'm trying to think of the ones here I know it's like two hands is an Australian based one there's so many here in your Blue city
1: bluestone Blue cafe they're doing really well
0: right
1: yeah. <laughs> yeah 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 no there's well coffee coffee we're we're obsessed about coffee uh over here yeah i got a bit of a shock when i lived in ontario for a while it was tim horton sorry to all- oh. Oh, seriously <laughs> yeah you know funny actually <laughs> i could really alienate myself from your listeners here and that's not my intention but i remember now i've just remembered so i had a canadian boyfriend years ago and i was living in southern ontario And I remember saying, I want to go out for brunch because we do do that as Aussies. That's the thing. And uh, especially on the weekends. And for my, my husband has Fridays and Saturdays off. So I'll sometimes actually often go out for brunch with him on a Friday. And anyway, so I'm in Canada years ago and it was so hard and I wasn't living in Toronto so it might have been different in Toronto and it definitely would have been different if I was in Vancouver because Vancouver's really cool but <laughs> I was in sort of a semi-regional area and the the most sophisticated thing on the menu was pancakes with maple syrup and I was like no I can't just have that that's just not on There needs to be more choice so I did I really struggled and then to get the brewed coffee only I was like oh no. <laughs> <laughs> But it was years ago, so to any Canadians listening, you're awesome, and I do have an affinity with with you, but I struggle with the brunch selections. At least they have maple syrup. Ah, and that is amazing. Do you
0: have a favourite brunch spot in Australia or Sydney?
1: Yeah, well, I live in a a pretty cosmopolitan area, uh, and so I have a place in Potts Point called Zinc, and... It's run by two men who I think were restaurant trained and it is a, it's kind of upmarket cafe. When I say upmarket, I mean, I still would wear, you know, shorts and a t-shirt there. It's not sort of dress-ups, but it just, it's a really good quality food, not too expensive. I'll often also have a Virgin Mary when I go there. So, you know, a Bloody Mary without the vodka and, and they make a mean omelette. So it's just cheese and herbs, but seriously, the best thing this side of Paris, I swear to God. So zinc, yeah, Z-I-N-C. It's not the grooviest on Instagram, probably not even on Instagram. It's pretty old school, but I absolutely love it.
0: And since this is the Brunch and Learn podcast, we did learn so much from you today, so thank you. But my next question is, turning the tables on you, you can either answer one or, or both. But what is one thing that you learned this week? Or what was the last thing you
1: Googled? I just realized I told you the last thing that I Googled. So I'm going to, which was this salmon eggs Benedict, just to make sure that it wasn't lost in translation. I didn't think it would be, but I just wanted to triple check. But that's not my answer. My answer is, I was reminded this last week, the power of gratitude.
0: Awesome. And final question is, where can people find you on the internet and say hi? I
1: would love them to visit www.femalesinfood.com for any information that they want and come and say hi in kiosk for women in food and drink my free facebook group i would love to have a conversation in there i do coaching in there education in there and there's a community of um, over 2,000 women currently in their building from all over the world, building, um, particularly America and Australia, uh, building food and drink businesses. And I would love to, them to say hi and say that they know you or and have listened to our conversation today.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you again for, for joining us today. Thank you, Nicole, for the
1: opportunity. I really love talking with you.
0: Hey friends, virtual hugs for completing another episode of the Brunch and Learn podcast. Did you learn something new this episode? I sure did. If you're loving the podcast, don't shy away from showing your love. Consider rating and reviewing the show on Apple Podcasts. And if you want to hear more guests and episodes, head over to our website at womenwhobrunch.com for episodes, recipes, blog posts, updates on events, and much more. See you guys soon.